Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this special edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Human behavior is directly responsible for the rate of climate change. Well, that's at the core of a recent global climate change report that revealed for a long time the science has been clear. From the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the report compiled the work of 234 scientists and more than 14,000 reports. Now, energy and economist Mark Jacquard worked on the report. Here's what he told Global News. As we put more greenhouse gases and especially carbon dioxide, the major greenhouse gas, into the atmosphere, so we're increasing its concentration, we are going to change the climate. Well, there's another conclusion. It's not too late to bring about solutions, but we wanted to come closer to home, Georgia. And so on today's program, we'll explore climate changes in our state from lessons learned in other regions. And also we'll talk about the issue of equity in green infrastructure development. And our own WABE environment reporter, Molly Samuel, gives a preview about her latest feature on urban heat. You have a question about that? Well, we're going to get all into it. And also what's taking place at the Georgia Climate Conference, which is currently underway. All that's coming up. But first, this Georgia Governor Brian Kemp continues to double down on his stance against mandatory mask measures. Now, Kemp was on America's newsroom from the Fox News Network yesterday. And Kemp blamed the Biden administration for the state's low vaccination rate. But he praised the previous one. You know, my message to people is, You need to talk to your doctor, talk to your local pharmacist. We've got a life-saving vaccine that the Trump administration delivered to us in warp speed time with Operation Warp Speed. And that's my message to folks because there's so much distrust with the government right now. Well, interesting answer there. In related news, the head of Georgia's largest hospital, Grady Memorial, right here in Atlanta, says a fourth wave of COVID-19 cases is pushing health care facilities to what he calls a breaking point. Why? Well, it's because of the highly transmissible Delta variant of the coronavirus. It's driving new infections throughout the southeast. John Hoppert is the CEO of the Grady Health System, and he says coronavirus hospitalizations at his facilities jumped from a total of 12 to 100 in just a month and continue to grow. He went on to say that paired with rises in inpatient and trauma patients, it could restrict access to care for the entire Atlanta area. Coronavirus infections and hospitalizations in Georgia have now spiked in recent weeks to levels not seen since the tail end of last winter's surge. Up next, Georgia and climate change. This is Closer Look. Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. This is Atlanta's Choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. As mentioned earlier, this recent global report on climate change breaks down a wide assessment of issues. And of course, that includes this revelation. Our planet is hot. And here's what caught my attention. Quote, due to greenhouse gases, Earth is warmer than it's been in 125,000 years. And that's where we'll begin today's special program on Georgia and climate change with heat. Heat is dangerous. In fact, it's the number one weather-related killer in the United States. And get this, cities are hotter than rural areas. And this is the focus of an upcoming feature from our own WABE environment reporter, Molly Samuel. We'll get a preview also of the Georgia Climate Conference, which gets underway today. Molly, welcome. Hi, Rose. Thanks for having me. Let's begin. Let's begin. Because you... you have covered all things things environment environment, and not just here in Georgia, Georgia, 
but throughout the Southeast. What is the climate assessment of this region? So this big IPCC report that came out this week, um, it's, it's, you know, it's very broad, it's global. So, but the National Climate Assessment, which came out a few years ago in 2018, it does break things down regionally. And so, so, you know, kind of some of the high level things from the National Climate Assessment for the Southeast is that, you know, hotter temperatures, we're already mm-hmm. experiencing hotter temperatures and uh, um, warmer nights, which is important um, health wise. Um, and also, you know, expecting to see kind of more weather extremes. So wetter wets and drier dries. It's not necessarily that we're going to be in huge long droughts like the West is, but that rainfall might be really heavy and then go into a sudden drought, sort of bouncing back and forth between extremes here. Oh, wow. And recently you reported on wildfires here in the Southeast. It was fascinating optics, including the fact that Molly, you you told us and the rest of the world, this region of the country is where the most wildfires start. I did not know that. Yeah, you know, I'm not sure I knew that either before <laughs> before I worked on this story. Yeah, so the southeast actually has the most number of wildfires start. Now we don't. These are generally not the giant destructive wildfires again mm-hmm. that we're hearing about out west. They usually get put out pretty fast. You know, they get found quickly, put out quickly, um, and so they don't get as bad. Um, but, you know, sometimes there are really bad wildfires. You'll remember five years ago, there was a horrible fire season, fall of 2016, and more than a dozen people were killed in Gatlinburg. Um, and what's happening at the same time now is that as, you know, we have the, these wildfires, you know, fire danger is getting worse mm-hmm. as, you know, climate heats up. Um, lots of people are moving into dangerous areas and don't realize it. Um, and so that was sort of the focus of that story. When you say moving into dangerous areas and not realizing it, is that just because we in Georgia, we don't think that we would deal with wildfires, particularly in the rural parts of the state? I think climate change, Molly, is affecting our, our audio connection. At least we can blame <laughs> it on that, right? I, You know, I'm not sure scientists have figured out the attribution <laughs> on that, but maybe, you know, tentatively. Let's go back. I was curious because you said that uh, folks didn't realize that they were moving into, I guess, sort of a dangerous a- dangerous areas. It's because you think we don't think about wildfires here in Georgia. So we think, hey, I'm going to move to the, and I'm just throwing this out there, Blue Ridge Mountains because it's beautiful. But then a fire starts. And so you focused on that. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that was the focus of my story. And, and you know, I, I focused on the, the North Georgia mountains kind of out of curiosity, especially after those 2016 fires. But um, it's really, you know, it, fire can happen anywhere in the state, um, you know, in the southern part of the state around the Okefenokee Swamp, lots of wildfire down there, mm-hmm. too. And so it's really, uh, you know, kind of the main takeaway is that folks should realize this and be prepared, um, you know, prepare their homes and, and just, you know, realize this is a problem. You're finishing up a feature. We're going to get a sneak preview into this because it's a focus on urban heat. And even when I read that and I was telling a friend about it, she said, urban heat, what's that? I said, well, you got to listen because Molly's going to tell you. (laughs) Give our listeners a brief synopsis of what this is about. Sure. So um, this story is really focusing on two, I think, really I mean, don't want to sound biased here, but two interesting research projects happening here this summer. Um, one is organized by Spelman and Georgia Tech, and the other one is Spelman and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And um, these two projects, really the goal is to get a better understanding of urban heat in Atlanta, that you know, by the end of this summer, they're going to have just a lot more information, not just on the fact that Atlanta is hotter than rural areas, and we can talk more about that, mm-hmm. but also an understanding of which neighborhoods are the hottest. It's going to be really interesting information. To so they're going about. to break it down by neighborhoods. Yeah, street by street. Any idea with this, with these urban heat islands or the urban heat areas? And I think I might know the answer is, but the effects, the many causes, and what are they? Sure. So starting with the causes. So so there, like you said, it's this thing called the urban heat island effect. And this is actually something that's been understood and studied by scientists for decades. This is not really a new concept. And it's basically that cities are hotter than other places because a we've got all these like hard surfaces that are generally darker which means they absorb more heat so we're talking about streets we're talking about buildings um, parking lots and then uh, we don't have as many trees and plants which help cool the air and so cities all cities are urban heat islands basically islands of heat surrounded by cooler rural areas 
Um, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, but Molly, it's fascinating because for so many years we keep hearing Atlanta is this little city in the forest. You have reported on the, the tree canopy situation. Depending on whom you ask, some folks said it's, it's headed for doom. Others say leave our tree canopy alone. We like it. But still now we have this urban heat. So our tree canopies aren't doing enough what they can do to help us? I mean, the trees are doing what the what trees can do. But I mean, there are certain neighborhoods, right? I mean, you're, if you're in downtown, you're in midtown, there are not as many trees. And that's where you're seeing this, you know, mm-hmm. this, the biggest effect. And so really, the point of this project is to figure out where are, where are the hot spots? And um, one thing that this exact research is being done in Atlanta right now, they don't have the answer yet. But in other study, in other cities, people have done research and found that redlined neighborhoods are hotter. Mm-hmm. Um, they have fewer trees. And so, I mean, you do see that, you know, the heat effects mapping onto Berkeley black neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's an idea, again, we don't have all the data on Atlanta yet. It is likely that some of that will map on here too. But on the other hand, you mentioned the city, you know, the city and the trees are, you know, Southwest Atlanta has got a lot of trees. Yeah. Um, and so you may not play, it may not play exactly like that here in Atlanta. We just don't know yet, but folks are out there doing this research. So the effects can vary based perhaps where someone lives and their socioeconomic level. We've heard this before, haven't we? Yes. And he, you know, he gets, I think maybe we're paying more attention to heat now, especially with these awful heat waves that we're hearing about in other parts of the country. Um, But according to the National Weather Service, heat is actually the number one weather related killer mm-hmm. in, in the United States. You know, we hear about tornadoes, hurricanes, cold, floods, heat, heat over the past 30 years has killed more people than, than those disasters have. So mm-hmm. it's a really important health issue. And, you know, folks with certain conditions are, are more susceptible to heat also. It's not just if you're outside, you want to drink a water. I mean, it, it can really be deadly. Well, Molly, when can listeners expect to hear this full feature? Uh, it should be airing on Monday. Ah, see, see, see what we brought to you. Closer look, I know. Close, yeah. Early for you all listening to Closer Look. <laughs> Before we let you go, right now the Georgia Climate Conference is underway on Jekyll Island, which is kind of interesting. What's on the agenda? What are they talking about? So, you know, there's a lot of, there. it's a whole range of things, really. I think they're talking about 100 different projects or more climate research projects, climate initiatives happening in Georgia. There's a lot going on in Georgia right now. You know, I think there's going to be a lot of discussion about the risks the state faces mm-hmm. and, and how people are studying that. But there's also a real focus on solutions. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what, 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 people, what companies, what agencies could be doing um, to help mitigate the effects of climate change and respond to the effects of climate change. And one interesting group that's been doing work the past few years is called Drawdown Georgia. Mm-hmm. And they're actually, it's a group of scientists and um, and advocates have, have kind of narrowed down to like 20 things that they say, if we focus on these things, we can address climate change in Georgia. Wow. We're going to talk a lot about solutions too with our next guest, WABE environment reporter, Molly Samuel, beginning this special edition of Closer Look. Molly, as always, solid reporting. We thank you so much. And I know I owe your family some cupcakes. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now. You're tuned to a special edition of Closer Look, Georgia and Climate Change. Now, you just heard from our WABE environment reporter, Molly Samuel, talking about urban heat. We're going to expand the climate change conversation and coverage from Atlanta to the southern region. And we're going to do so by focusing on U.S. Interstate 10. 
Yeah, I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. Just hang with me. Stretching almost 2,500 miles across the southern United States from Jacksonville, Florida, to the Los Angeles area in California. You're wondering, what does this route have to do with climate change? Well, my next guest, Wellington Duke Ryder, founder and executive director of the 10 Across Initiative. He's also a senior advisor to the president of, of the Arizona State University. He's going to tell us all about it. Duke Ryder, welcome to the program. Thanks, Molly. Glad to be with you. I'm Rose. Oh, Rose. Excuse me. I'm thinking about Molly, who just left. Excuse yeah, me. But Molly, can she can fill in. She does a great job. And I heard you deliver cupcakes. It sounds great. <laughs> Please don't make me deliver them way out there where you are. Duke, let, yeah. let's back up a little bit for our listeners, because what is it about this I-10, this, this corridor? And I think you all summarize it as uh, it offers a compelling window on what, what lies ahead for the nation on the front lines of social, economic, and climate change. Break that right. down. Yeah, so Rose, the, the thought was that if you look at that transect, and it's the most expeditious crosscut across the nation from, as you pointed out, LA to Jacksonville, it's where many of the most extreme conditions are. Everybody understands what's happening with water, droughts mm-hmm. in the Southwest, uh, inundation and sea level rise in the Gulf area. You've got uh, uh, extreme temperatures happening as well. And you've got some other major social issues, such as immigration, right Mm -hmm. in this vicinity. So we're not obsessed with the roadway of the I-10, but it happens to be a convenient necklace, if you will, on which other things can be attached. And you can see a really good picture of the future of the entirety of the country in its most extreme situations, because most climate change is, is occurring and moving northward with regard to temperature change and other things like that. I want to back up for a moment because I'm curious, how did you all, how did you come to this this realization when you looked at this this region, this corridor? Like, when did it hit you? You know, it has, it's, it's a great question and, and it's somewhat personal in that I spent 10 years of my life in New Orleans hmm. and some people, look at the city of New Orleans, which is below sea level and say, you know, that's probably not the greatest place for a city, but a great city had to be at the mouth of Mississippi River. And then when I moved to Phoenix, I heard the same thing. What is that city doing out there in the middle of the desert where you don't have enough water? And it turns out the same things were said about Houston, sort of a swampy area, LA, same thing was predicted. You don't have enough water and they had to pipe it in. So I happened to see that there are a number of cities on the 10 where their very existence has been questioned almost from the inception of these places. So I want to understand why we build where we build, what we have to do to sustain ourselves in those areas has to do a lot to do with infrastructure, which is much in the news right now Mm -hmm. and how we're going to persist in these areas. And isn't this sort of a laboratory for how human beings and certainly Americans take a look at this country and determine where they want to be and what it's going to take. In fact, you all call this I-10 stretch a living laboratory through which to understand mm-hmm. and cultivate more effective responses to the known future. So someone listening says, okay, well, Duke, let's talk about that because this is at the core of the work that you all do with the 10 Across Initiative. What is the, what is the mission here? So, so the mission is uh, uh, several, has several components. Mm-hmm. First of all, we convene people from across the 10 and what we find and we speculated this would be true and it turns out it is the case that even though let's say you're coming from the gulf area like your city of baton rouge Mm -hmm. and you're meeting up with your colleagues in phoenix and you say what do we have in common doesn't look like much on the ground totally different places Mm -hmm. turns out when you pull people together who are really interested in the discussion of climate change and in this case water Mm -hmm. they had everything in common which they discovered Uh, how to speak to their local communities, how to talk about leadership, financing, the role of the federal government, infrastructure, which I already mentioned. And it really didn't matter whether you were addressing the rising tides uh, that are experienced in New Orleans and other places Mm -hmm. or drought in the Southwest. The basic issues, the human issues are the same and how you need to solve problems are the same. So it's turned out to be a hugely productive convening of thinkers across the U.S. So when you bring all these stakeholders together, and I don't know if you have chance, if you have had a chance to read the United Nations report, it is about 900 pages long. But at the core, they say, well, it's not too late. But they did give some doom and gloom in the beginning. So when you bring all these these stakeholders together, what are the barriers that people talk about? Because if you all want to bring everybody together, it makes sense. Okay, we can get this done. But much like with this pandemic, 
And I'm not picking on elected officials, but sometimes politics gets in the way. And I imagine that may be a barrier when you talk about what do we do now that you're convening all of these great thinkers and, and scientists and advocates and what have you? Well, as you surely know, it's sort of hard to separate politics at the moment from almost anything. And that's surely true of climate change. And we're, we're seeing that play out with COVID right now. And it's also interesting that we have the three largest states across the 10, mm-hmm. California, Texas, and Florida. Mm-hmm. One of those is a little different than the other two. But whether it's Georgia or Arizona, again, we, we're not completely wedded to the I-10. But how those three major states go uh, so goes the nation to some extent. The decisions really? they're making, the observations they're making, you might have noticed that maybe Florida and Texas are not completely on board with how urgent the situation around, whether it's COVID or climate change might be. California is offering a different model. Mm-hmm. And, and so as you see how uh, nearly a third of the population is being addressed by political leaders and what they should pay attention to and how much urgency should be uh, dedicated to these topics. We talk about that. And it's also interesting, the Ten Across Project, like the highway itself, doesn't really care about state boundaries. Mm -hmm. The big issues that we're going to have to address around water or heat or other things, uh, air quality, how we distribute energy, it's got to ignore state boundaries to some extent if we're going to come up with solutions. I also noticed that you all, and we're going to talk about this in our next segment with our two guests, but you all also point out, look, we've got 20 million people living in distressed zip codes in the 10 across states. So now we also get into equity and and disparities and all of that. I know that's not lost on you. It's not. It's it's why we built this project. Not only does it have the climate issues and the big water energy issues affiliated with it, you've got the energy capital of the world in Houston embedded in this, but you've got the epicenter of places uh, uh, that are frequently talked about with regard to immigration, like Mm -hmm. Ciudad Juarez and El Paso. Uh, You happen to have often red states, very blue cities, rural spaces in between. Mm -hmm. Issues of equity abound in this area. And so you can't separate discussions of climate from equity and social issues as well. I have a listener that just sent me an email that wants you to focus a little bit more. When you say as those three big states goes, so does the rest of the nation. Uh, they want to talk about Florida, for example. What, what can you tell them? I, I think uh, it was not long ago under the previous governor that uh, climate change couldn't even be used. That phrase could not be used. Uh, that tells you something about us as Americans, tells you about the time that we're in. That changed with the incoming governor, who's having some issues now, I think, with COVID. But he did uh, put in place a chief resilience officer for the state. Uh, she has since moved to be with the Biden administration. Mm-hmm. I don't think they filled that uh, seat as of yet. But when you watch states the size of Florida, which are expanding, which if you look at forecasts, portions of it may not be with us if sea level rise does what it's predicted to do. And you're seeing some of that happening right now. So watching a big state like that and or Texas grapple with these issues, uh, I, th- I think it's a demonstration of how we're going to have to change our perspective on these challenges. And we're going to have to work together in a very different way. Well, Duke, I've had so many conversations about whether it's climate change or whether it's affordable housing. And there's always this core message of it's a holistic approach. It's people working together. Even when some folks give a timeline, I think someone's saying, well, by 2050, if we don't reach these metrics as it relates to climate change, this is going to happen. We keep hearing the same message over whether it's a 900-page report from the UN or if it's a reporting from Molly Samuel. And it's always the same question. Why, as humans, since we are the cause of this, why can't we put in those measures to change this? Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> Rosa, I wish I had the answer to well, that. Well, Duke, you're that, supposed to have the answer. <laughs> well, that is the question. And so our response to that, and, and I think about it in terms of my children and grandchildren, if you're a young person hearing those same dates constantly, how do you respond to that? How do you see your future being sort of whittled away. So we are building a curriculum mm-hmm. that we're hoping to, hope to distribute across the Ten Across area that will give students in high schools and, and universities a sense of agency. And we want to convert that potential despair, because there's every reason to despair, right, mm-hmm. 
into a sense, no, I could be a contributor to the solution to this. Maybe I need to be an engineer. Maybe I need to be in politics. Maybe I need to be in, in uh, finance and find financial solutions to some of these things. But we'd love to have a curriculum that's empowering and, and, and that opens pathways to students who are hearing those very same 2030, 2040, 2050 mm -hmm. figures all the time. And I just wonder how they're absorbing that and want to contribute to they're feeling a sense of possibility. And something else with the report that came out, it talked about not only in terms of solutions, but how we now as humans have to adjust to it. And someone will say, well, we have to adjust now. Well, yes, we're planning for the future, but we have to make adjustments now. So when I ask you, Duke, what are those adjustments? Whether it's me as a, as a homeowner or, you know, right in my own yeah. little place, or it's a legislator, you know, what is there, everyone basically has a responsibility here. So what do we need to do now? I think that's true. And, and, and as you move from a sequence of maybe thinking about this problem and talking about sustainability, and then maybe you graduate to resilience, and then you get to adaptation. For some, the word adaptation could sound like giving up. Mm -hmm. hey, it's just going to get worse. There's nothing we can do about it. We got to either raise our house or move out of the desert or whatever it is. And we already have, if you want to call them that, climate refugees in the Ten Across Corridor who have literally been pushed out of their homes because of riding, rising waters in the Gulf area. So adaptation is happening now. People are making decisions. And you probably have guests, Rose, who talk about where they're going to move to. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe it's getting too hot. And I'm sure that's very much a discussion in the area where I am in Phoenix. Uh, that's been a, a response by humans forever to move and do that kind of thing. But I think we're a little more sophisticated than that. And we have to turn our attention to what we can do to adjust the situation. Adaptation is a part of it. But I think we also have to uh, recognize human nature for what it is, as you pointed out. Uh, can we rally together as a society? And when you look at the country at the moment, it's a little hard to see that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, so people have often said, well, maybe it'll take a big crisis. COVID is certainly that, and yet we haven't been able to come together. Well, you can look at some of the natural disasters that we've all experienced uh, and one could argue that policy hasn't necessarily changed. I want to shift for a moment before I let you go, because I want to talk about then where you see the United States in the global sense and being a one of those ambassadors or being one of the leaders. Now, we know we've had some changes throughout who's in Washington, D.C. That, that matters, obviously. But where do you see the U.S. being a, a pivotal, critical uh, player in all of this and in, in, in this yeah. lead and this this desire as we talk about climate climate change from a global standpoint and you have seen uh, a shift depending on who's in office in dc from we're engaged with the paris accords to stepping away from those and now jumping back in i think the the world needs the united states to be leading here and we'd like to believe that our project, which is representative of maybe most extreme conditions in the U.S., if we can demonstrate that we can make progress across this 2,500-mile transect under these conditions in this country, that can be a template for how the rest of our country and maybe other nations can look at how we're addressing this and find confidence or comfort in the ability for that to happen. We are still uh, a first-world nation. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'd like to believe that. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of nations that don't have the resources we do. And so how what we're learning can be applied to their situations is going to be yet even another challenge. What else is on the forefront for your, your initiative over there that you all are working on? And also, too, if you could add to that, is there an area of climate change that's not getting enough attention paid to that we're not talking about enough? Well, it's interesting you had Molly on right before I did, and you can imagine heat island effects in a city that had almost 50 days over 110 degrees, mm. uh, which is the fifth largest in the United States and still growing. So that is being addressed, but uh, the challenges there are, are obvious. Um, I, I think you actually hit on, on one. You can look at the things that need to be done because they're right before you. You can mm -hmm. see things like the Hoover Dam and Lake Mead going down and say, okay, we have a water problem. You can look at what happened with the power grid in Texas and see that, okay, we have a problem. But the human issues, the decision-making capacity of the leaders that we put into office, the way we communicate about these issues is why we're really interested in the connection between education and media. How do the voices of young people who are coming up get their voices heard in the media? 
and how do stories that are happening out there make their way in real time into classrooms so students feel as though they're really part of solutions, part of real world activities. I think that's what we have to do. And I think a lot of people would agree with you on that. Duke, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Wellington Duke writer, founder, and executive director of the 10 Across Initiative. We'll have links to all of these great segments on our website later today, folks, as, as always. Duke, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Got to have you come back. Now, I'm not going to drive from Jacksonville all the way out there to where you are, just, you know, but maybe I can take Rose, a Rose, <laughs> I'll meet you halfway. We'll pick a spot halfway. And Atlanta is 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 absolutely part of our study area. So I'd love to uh, do this again. But thank you very much. Oh, for your yeah, time. we'll bring you back. We want to know what you guys are looking at. Take care now, Duke. All right. Take care, Rose. Close Look continues now as we conclude this special on Georgia and climate change. And now we turn to issues related to access, equity, and justice, all at the intersection of green infrastructure. And we realize these are easily identified. We know what the benefits are, right? We hear about cleaner air and water, reduced flooding and runoff. But we also know the benefits are unequally felt. As communities and governments make a push for green infrastructure, here's some questions. How can we make sure it benefits, prioritize those who have suffered from climate injustice, as we call it? Well, let's talk about it. Joining me now is Dr. Christina Fuller. She's Associate Professor in Population Health Sciences at Georgia State School of Public Health. And also Suzanne Burns, Director of Just Growth at the Partnership for Southern Equity. Thank you both for taking time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for inviting me on this program, Rose. So let's begin here. Um, you've been listening. Um, you heard what the Duke had to say earlier. I just kind of want to get you all your overall thoughts right now on where we are as a nation when it comes to not only just paying attention to climate change, but also from policy to execution. How would you assess this? Dr. Fuller, I'll start with you. Yes. I mean, with the, um, the recent IPCC report, it really shows that we are in a global crisis right now. Um, and this report, you know, more so than any other one has really shown how humans are affecting the climate and how there must need to be action now. And also how we're already feeling the impacts. And one of the facts is that um, those effects are being felt, first of all, by all of us, mm -hmm. which we all have our individual stories of that, but also how it's being felt disproportionately by low-income communities of color um, and also low-income nations across the world. Suzanne Barnes, what about you, Burns? What about you? What's your take? Well, I'm, I like to see the glasses half full, and I am continually um, just trying to keep in front of me in, in the midst of, of some troubling news that just in, increases every day, it seems, that mm -hmm. there are incredible organizations and uh, individuals, leaders, and communities um, more and more every day who are doing amazing work to try to prepare for adaptation for greater resilience and and committing to the things that we need to do to mitigate uh, the the impacts of climate change. So I think the work is happening. We need it accelerated. We need it um, more deeply funded. Uh, and and then we need to to help to facilitate some of the the power shift that I think will get us to more community-driven solutions. And as we talk about green infrastructure, I know there are so many benefits when it comes to that. I just mentioned a few a moment ago, but through your lens, I'd like for you all to take your listeners on what, when we talk about equity and green infrastructure, what it should look like. Dr. Fuller? Yes. I mean, um, trees and green infrastructure can really be a part of addressing climate change, especially for those communities that are being disproportionately impacted. So what it looks like really depends on the local needs and they can, trees can provide different types of what we call ecosystem services to, to humans and to also natural ecosystems. So that can mean reducing pollution exposures from air pollution. Mm -hmm. It could mean um, 
cooling our cities, there's been lots of discussion on the program today about the heat island effect and how trees can help to reduce um, those temperatures even within cities and also reducing stormwater runoff as well that's mm -hmm. cause of flooding in many areas here in Atlanta in some particular areas on the west side mm -hmm. really have deep flooding issues and uh, connected to that are also um, some more difficult to measure benefits, which are benefits on our mental health, about seeing trees and being in natural green surroundings. And um, they can really be built in a way to sustain and rebuild natural eco ecosystems if they're constructed well. So that's what it really looks like and really depends on what the community wants and what the community needs locally and then from that regionally. Ms. Burns, what about you? What should green, when we talk about equity and green infrastructure through your lens? Well, we, when we talk about equity, we are really referring to, to fair and just inclusion. And in trying to, to unravel systems that have created disparities in the past through policies and practices, we think that, that you can't really understand inequity if you don't understand the history and how we got to this point, what were the decisions that were made. Um, and understanding the, the ways that communities have been harmed and, and how they need to be at the, at the front of determining what is the solution that's best for their community. So there's, there's obviously a lot of listening. There's a lot of uh, difficult conversations that we think have to happen. Um, and folks have to be open to, to learning, to seeing communities in different ways, to engaging communities in different ways in decision-making processes. Um, and, and acknowledging that because of the past harms, uh, they, they deserve to have a say in, in what the solutions are gonna be and they deserve to have protections put in place so that they get to stick around and experience those solutions. And we know that, that uh, investments in infrastructure of any kind, whether they're green infrastructure, housing infrastructure, uh, trail infrastructure, can have the unintended consequence of, of contributing to displacement if those considerations are not part of the decision-making on the early early end in the planning. And we have had so many conversations about that, whether it's the Beltline or any other development. And I know that's a whole nother segment, so I'll move on before I get an email. But let me stay with you, Ms. Burns, for a moment, because based on what you all have just said, these metrics that you're using to identify these disparities when it comes to green infrastructure, it seems like it, it, it shouldn't be that hard to do. Is, is that what you're saying in, in a sense? Um, I will say that it's not rocket science, but it takes time. And, and that is something that we've, we've uh, not got the luxury of right now in some respects. Uh, so we really feel like one of the most important things that has to happen um, is, is some sense of sort of reconciliation again with the communities who have borne these burdens for so many decades. Um, and, and that the environmental harms have led to so many other layers of harm. Mm -hmm. Um, we, we have to have some acknowledgement of that harm and education. We have to know that some of the solutions that, that have to be a part of the mix take generations. They, they, they can't wait um, until a project is being designed and implemented. Um, you've got to be understanding what is the, the ownership of the property around the area where mm -hmm. a project is going to be implemented. What are the access points for jobs um, in the community so they can increase their income as the, the property values in the area increase with the new investments. Um, so there are a lot of layers to it, but, but we really do feel like it's, it's a matter of a slightly different conversation, more openness, um, more listening. And we see that happening in many, many places right now. I think the way that the green infrastructure was approached 10 or 15 years ago, by the nonprofit community and by government agencies um, is, is happening in a very, very different way now. And we see a lot of bright spots. Okay, so Dr. Foley, you heard Ms. Burns talk about listening. So when we talk about then this green infrastructure equity index, in my research, I keep finding all this. People say you have to come up with a green infrastructure equity index to promote what they call equity planning. So you have to listen, then come up with an index, then you got to promote and come up with a plan. Is that is that pretty much it? Um, well, there's so many ways to 
to measure things. Um, and you can have all kinds of indices that are going to be reading different things. Mm -hmm. But what is really important that Suzanne started to talk about is really looking at local communities and really looking at those individual needs. Um, green infrastructure is something that you may think about very differently in terms of implementation, also in terms of the history um, down here in the Southeast, versus in Phoenix, mm -hmm. in Arizona, or someplace else. And there can still be benefits of green infrastructure in those places, but you really have to look at it locally. So it's not necessary to have some particular measurement. Mm -hmm. It's really important to understand the history and to understand where you're needing to go and make sure that equity is really the foundation of that development. Because if you have equity um, in the middle of that, mm -hmm. then it will change your framework, the questions that you're looking at and what you're actually planning to do to utilize that green infrastructure. Well, then to that, and I'll stay with you, Dr. Fuller, to that note, then before we get into policy and all that, who is then leading that leading the conversations about history? And I think it was Ms. Burns who talked about it, and you too, about acknowledging the past. Who needs to lead, that, lead the conversation on that to get it started? Mm -hmm. Well, that really needs to be led by the communities, community members, community organizations, residents um, really need to be at the forefront. And like Suzanne said, this is a process that will take time in order to really have an effective outcome. It's something that's going to benefit communities. So we really have to start with them first. Well, can you give an example to our listeners of is there are these conversations happening first? Are they already happening here in our community in the Atlanta area? Can you give our listeners some template here that's working or that's about to work? Yes, where there's definitely several groups who are working around this area around green infrastructure and also green space. And um, those include um, the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, mm -hmm. and they are very much working around green space and also water and because that natural environment is intertwined. Um, you also have community um, garden groups as well and urban forestry um, and urban agric agriculture such as truly living well mm -hmm. which we've had discussions with them in terms of looking at how can those green spaces really um, be purposeful and can have multiple uses in terms of teaching people new skills growing um, fruits and vegetables that people can use and also taking a hand at reducing air pollution locally and for the region. Let me ask you both this. Is there a, because often people will say, well, it's because so much development is coming in. It's because they're building all these buildings and, the, and they're knocking down trees. Is there a, a compromise here? Because city officials will tell you we want businesses to come here. We want headquarters, people to have their headquarters here. But at the same time, we talk about development and developers have their own version of what sustainability and what have you will look like is what does a compromise look like between a community and, and a developer and then in the middle there is the city because they for example Atlanta they're the ones who are going to pass ordinances they're the ones who are going to give the okay on some of these developments but often there's a lot of arguing and a lot of bickering where's the compromise how does that happen I think that that these these issues have to play on a, a lot of different levels at the the city level yeah absolutely the city of atlanta is in a, an incredible growth trajectory right now that is going to continue to put pressure on um on land use for decades to come and and yet the city also has an incredibly um, well thought out aspirational vision of where development should and could be concentrated mm -hmm. so that it has the least impact on the green infrastructure that exists, where are areas in the city that really need to be protected, which serve as the lungs for the city, um, and, and how can we find a balance of moving away from more exclusionary land use and zoning practices of the past towards practices that 
that create some, some middle ground, some things like um, missing middle is a, is a type of development that you hear talked about a lot, which is essentially trying to replicate some of the development patterns that happened in our historic neighborhoods for decades, which are not legally allowed anymore. The, the granny flat in the backyard where you might be able to have um, you know, an additional family member live or a long-term rental unit or ability you mean like a, to- You mean like a carriage house or something like that? Exactly, exactly. So, so those are, I think, some really important solutions to helping us to address the need that we have for more housing, more density in a way that can be thoughtful and not massive developments coming into single family areas or areas that have dense green space. Dr. Fuller, where's the balance here? Well, I think it comes from um, prioritizing. You can prioritize more than one thing. You can prioritize, first of all, equity. That's going to be the foundation. But then you can also prioritize um, green space, trees, and um, business development, and also housing. So you can have high density housing that does not need to be that you clear cut the whole area around it and take away all of the older trees. You can build within that and then add um, trees in addition. They, if you are thinking about green space and housing, or green space in a building, it can go into how you design that building. And I think one of the things that's missing when this planning is in effect is that you have community members that need to be involved, that want to be involved, but then you have practitioners, they may be designers, developers, Mm -hmm. architects, who have no involvement with working with communities and just really don't know how to include them even if they wanted to. And many don't have the desire to do that. So we need to also train these practitioners about community involvement and how to include communities so that there are going to be new designs that can fulfill these priorities, but it's definitely possible. I have an email from a listener who says, Rose, both your guests, guests keep talking about it would take time Communities on the west side don't have that much time. I'd like to get their thoughts on that. Dr. Fuller, I'll let you <laughs> talk about that. Yeah, that's definitely a, a really important point. And with the time, it needs to be thoughtful. It needs to be authentic engagement. And there are already communities groups working on the west side that have plans that they just want to be listened to and at higher levels in Atlanta. So community members, and this has been something that I've seen over my years of doing um, you know, community-based research, is that communities have gotten together and created their own plans mm-hmm. that need to be proposed and accepted and discussed with the governmental agencies and with municipalities. So really getting the the municipalities with those groups and individuals to talk right now. And that can happen. All right. Ms. Burns. Absolutely. And if I could build on that, I mean I think the the beautiful thing is that right now we're not starting from zero. We're starting from a place where where a lot of folks, I mean, you, you lifted up, uh, Christina, the West Atlanta Watershed Alliance, they're a close partner of ours, um, folks like EcoAction, Park Pride, the Conservation Fund, you know, the Proctor Creek Stewardship Council, lots mm-hmm. of great, great organizations that have been building momentum on this for 10 years, 15 years. So these are not brand new conversations. They're building trust with residents, they're building relationships. And, and now they're at a point where, where investments are changing and projects that have been on the shelf or on a, in a plan sitting somewhere for, for years are, are being um, implemented. And, and it's a different kind of experience and a different kind of outcome. And I think there's particularly some really amazing work happening on the West side um, with the parks efforts and the, the whole Parks with Purpose initiative that, yeah, one of the things that I think they bring to this a discussion that is really worth us considering as we want to accelerate things mm-hmm. is that some of these private partners and nonprofit partners 
can work in close collaboration with local governments in a way that uh, has more flexibility maybe than the local government has. And so you, you can accelerate different parts of, of an engagement process, a construction process, and, and actually bring jobs to the community uh, for residents who, who want to benefit from this amenity and they wanna have good work that comes from this amenity that helps them be a part of the future there. Yeah, workforce development, we didn't even touch on that. There were so many tentacles tied to this that we didn't just have enough time. <laughs> we'll have to bring you all back. But I do have a final question for you all as we look at not only from a global standpoint, but right down here to, to Fulton County in Atlanta, Georgia, where our station is located. If we don't start addressing some of these issues now, um, I don't want to end on doom and gloom, but let, let's turn it around. How can we get to where we want to be? Dr. Fuller, I'll start with you because I'll get an email. Rose, you ended it on doom and gloom, but... You know. Yeah, that's great. I'm glad how you flipped it at the end. <laughs> um, so, right, we need to take action right now. Um, there is action going on, like Suzanne was just saying. So really connecting the communities and the work that they've been doing for recent years and putting them in touch to really converse with local agencies. And um, we really need to put into place this new paradigm. And we have the tools right now. We just have to exercise them. All right. And Ms. Burns, I got about a minute. You get the last word. Well, I'll say that we're in we're in pivotal times right now in terms of our city and coming up on a major election. Uh, we have an infrastructure package in, in Congress that we're anticipating is going to bring a, 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 an incredible amount of resources to the state and the region. And now is the time when we should be asking of our future policymakers how, how much did they prioritize this paradigm shift? How are they preparing to accept those federal funds and prepare communities for, for the work ahead? All right, Suzanne Burns, Director of Just Growth at the Partnership for Southern Equity. Dr. Christine Fuller, Associate Professor in Population Health Sciences at Georgia State School of Public Health. Thank you both for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for being part of this, this special program. I'm going to bring y'all back, all y'all. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much, Rose. And that's it for this special edition of Closer Look. If you missed any of today's program, it's online at wabe.org slash Closer Look. And you can always listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. as well as in our podcast. Subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. A big thanks to producer Daniel Rezell. This was all his idea. He said, Rose, let's do an hour on climate change. I said, let's do it, Daniel. He did a great job. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Local, state, national politics. WABE and NPR have the coverage you need. I'm Jim Burris, host of WABE's All Things Considered. Whether it's on the air at 90.1, streaming online, or connecting through our mobile app, WABE keeps you on top of election 2024 in what's sure to be a pivotal year in politics. And for candidates and ballot information, visit our election hub at wabe.org slash election 2024.